Let me ask you a question. You don't need to answer. Just think about it. But who do you look like? Your mom or your dad? Or maybe you're going like, I don't look like my mom or my dad, but I do look like my uncle or my aunt. Maybe you look like your grandparent. And, and the thing about being a part of a family is that you will look like someone and you will have some kind of family resemblance about you. And that resemblance will give you a way as to whose family you belong to. Now, some of us don't necessarily like the resemblance that we've been given. Right? We wished our nose wasn't as big. We wished our hair was straighter or there. But yet, when you're in the, in, the, in the family, you do look like someone. Your kids look like you. But you know, some of you don't look anything like the family that you're in. And that's because somebody lovingly said, we're going to adopt you into this house, and you became a part of their family through adoption. But the crazy thing is, is that even in adoption, when little kids are adopted into a home, that... When you see them 20 years later, they have the same mannerisms that their mom and dad have. They talk the same. They use the same slang. They put their hands on their hips the same way. They stance, the gait, the everything about them looks like they belong to the family, only they don't look anything like the family. And that's the great thing about adoption is you adopt part of the mannerisms and the attitudes and behaviors. You, you speak like them. And you're adopted into the family. And that's a really great thing. But you know what? That's really true about us because we have family resemblance. We, we have mannerisms. We have all those things going on in our families right now. But there is this thing because we get adopted into God's family too. And the thing about being adopted into to, to this new family that we have, it's really more difficult for us to... In, uh, imitate our new heavenly father. It, it just seems like there's a whole lot of old behavior, old attitudes, old residual attributes of who we are still hanging on, and we don't look as much like our heavenly father as we do our earthly father. I can remember one time when um, I was having a conversation with my boss. I have a district boss. And he was asking me a question, and he asked me, so why do you think you did that? And my response to him was, because there's way too much of George in me and not enough of Jesus. And that's the truth. And so what I want is less of George and Ken and more of Jesus. And as a Christ follower, we should always be living in kind of three arenas in life. We should be thinking about these things and living here what we are, what we shall be, and uh, what we should be. So let me explain that. What we are is we are children, God's children. And what we shall be is conformed to the image of Christ when we get to heaven. And what we should be is based on those two previous ideas and thoughts is that we should live a pure and holy life prior to going to heaven. Those are the three areas that we should constantly, every day, be monitoring our own life. Am I looking more like Jesus? Do I imitate Jesus in the things that I, you know, I'm doing? Am I conforming more to the image of God? That's called family origins. And that's really what, what God wants for us. Is For us, we, He wants us to still love the family, but He wants us to look less like our earthly family and to start to look more like our heavenly family. So we're in uh, John's first letter, and we're in the third chapter. And we're just stepping into the third chapter this week. And I hope I don't have to cut it off, cut a little bit out of it today, because I think it's really important to unpack these ten verses together. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to kind of go verses one through three, then four through six, then seven through ten. We're going to take those three chunks kind of like that as we go through this. So here we go. 
1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who, who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Now, because of adoption into the family of God, John is directing our attention to reflect on the greatness of our Father. You notice that right there he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. This is, this is more than just a passing thought or some kind of idiom that he's using to make us feel really good about who we are and we come to church because I don't know about you, but coming to church, there's a part of me that says, I like coming here because I get to be around you. I get a lot of hugs and I get some kisses too and that's okay. This Bible says, greet one another with a holy kiss, right? And so I get a little hug, a little kiss, and I love that part about church, and it makes me feel good. But I also know that when the Spirit of God starts to do a little bit of work in my life, even while I'm preaching, understand me, listen, when I, I've, I've worked all week on this thing, and God has done some work in my heart while I've been preparing this thing, but the craziest part is that God works while I'm speaking to myself. Okay, so, so, you know, we've been adopted, and so Jesus didn't just give us this stuff just to make us feel good, because he's going to come alongside of us, and he's going to go like, for some of you, what you need to hear, because you are a child of God, is when God slips his arm around you, and he says, you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter. I love you more than you will ever be able to grasp in this world. My love for you is so deep that it goes beyond measure. I love you deeply. Others of you need to hear. Now, son, that ain't the right thing to do. And right now, you and me, we're going out to the woodshed, and we're going to have a talk. And you're not going to like it. But believe me, I'm only doing this because I love you. How many times did you hear your dad say that to you? All right, so... But here's the great news about being adopted into God's family. I mean, this is, this is something that's really helpful for us because when, when God adopts us into his family, he makes it a legal binding agreement. It is legal. In every sense of the word, it is legal. What Jesus did on the cross is he signed, sealed, and delivered the letter of adoption for each one of you, and it is legally binding. And the good news about it being legally binding is, is that our enemy, the enemy of our soul who wants to rob, kill, and destroy us and wants to destroy other people who don't know Jesus, what he is is he's a legalist. And he lives in the legal world because he will tell you that where you kind of maybe slipped up, he's going to go legally, you just broke the law, therefore you deserve punishment, not grace. And he lives in the legal realm all the time. And so what he wants to do is he wants to legally accuse you of breaking God's law. But what God says to us and helps us understand is that legally we've been adopted as the children of God. And so we stand on that legally. And so when the enemy comes and says, you're not worth two cents, you go, yes, I am. Because you look at the cross, it was signed, sealed, and delivered right there for me. And I am legally a son or daughter of God. You have no business here. Shut your cake hole, get out of here. Yeah. And guess what? Because he's legalist, he has to leave. Because he lives by the law, he has no authority over your life. Because you are legally adopted by God. It's like, what? Why didn't I know this like yesterday? Now listen. He's a little bit cunning. He's deceptive. He will come in sheep's clothing... And he will try to trick you, to deceive you, and make you think something that's not true. And all you have to do is when you hear something that doesn't sound like it's from God, you go, now, wait a minute. Legally, I'm a child of God. So if, if this is the work of the enemy, you have no, no legal ground here. 
I belong to God. You have to leave. And he will leave. It's not your authority. It's not by anything you've done. It's not by your work. It's because God has legally adopted you into the family. Now listen, and the reason that the Father has, has done this is, is what um, John does here. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. The word Father has been placed in a key position to emphasize family relationships. God himself is the source of this love to us. And what a marvelous love it is. Listen to this. The love of God is broad, deep, marvelous, unimaginable, incomprehensible, boundless, endless, and measureless. That's the love of God. And what you know about the love of God, you have just barely tapped into it. You have barely gotten into it and gotten a hold of it. What you know about it is just the beginning. And what you will know about it will only come to the fullness when you get to heaven. Then you'll go like, wow! Just like Christmas morning. Christmas morning, I still get wowed at new underwear and socks. Yeah. Especially after this week when you get the gun shot off right next to your office. Somehow that was going to come up. All right. So to try and measure the, the content of God's love is to measure the ocean with a teacup. It's like making a personal inspection of the known universe. It's like setting up a yardstick to see how tall God is or using a tape measure to determine the breadth of his reach. When I look at the cross, I see that there is a love that shrinks from no sacrifice. It is invoked by no lovableness on my part, but comes from the depth of God's own infinite being. God is a God who loves because he must, and who must because he is God. I see on the cross a love that will not be extinguished by sinfulness, but pours its treasure out on the unworthy like a sunbeam on a dunghill. God's love for us. This is not a love that you or I deserve. This love is a gift because God reaches down to us, unlovely though we are in the midst of our sins, and extends to us the honor of His name and gives us the privilege and benefit of bearing the family name and being called son or daughter of the Most High God. That's what it means to be adopted. And to truly function as a Christ follower, you really have to know who you are and who you all and who you are all starts with your identity being found in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Because we are in Christ, the good news for us is that no matter how messed up we are, no matter how dysfunctional our family is, no matter the issues we have going on in our life, Our spiritual birth is just like our physical birth in the fact that it is done one time and one time only. You don't have to go get reborn into God's family. You're going to mess it up, believe me. You are going to make a mess of this, and god that's the great thing. God's going like, hey, like you're surprised you messed it up? He's not. He's never surprised by your mess. He's never put off by your mess. You know, it's just like being in our own families. Um, we, we do stuff in our families that kind of will bring dishonor to the family name. I can tell you that I did that when I was younger, a lot younger, before I was married, before I even went to college. I kind of took a little bit of time between being a preacher's kid and be, being a preacher. And so those were the lost years. And when I made that transition and thought, finally, I should probably do something with my life meaningful, I can remember going to my mom and dad's place. They lived in Washington. I was living in Oregon. I think I was like 19 or 20. And I drove in, and I just, you know, I was talking with my mom and dad, and I said, hey, there's a few things I want you to know about me that you don't know about me. 
And my mom and dad are going like, okay. I said, look, I broke the law. I was drinking underage. I shouldn't have been. I got drunk. And some of the people that you know that aren't necessarily fans of you, they're going to want to say to you, hey, we saw your son drunk downtown. He was drunk out of his mind. And what you want to do is you want to go, not our boy Kenny. He's a good boy. No, he's not. And so I want you to know that so that when they say to you, hey, by the way, guess what? We saw your son, Ken, and he was drunk out of his mind. You can go like, yeah, we know. He told us. Because that takes, the, takes all the ammunition right out of the gun. It won't go off. <laughs> Funny how that thing just keeps sneaking around. It's not even in my notes. But you know what? I, I, did, I let my mom and dad know that I was not the kid that they thought I was. They needed to know the truth about me, and I dishonored the family name. But guess what? They loved me anyway. My brothers and sister, that was a different story. <laughs> um, but, he, you know, God will never disown you. I want you to hear that. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are. God will never disown you. I just learned this this morning from, from John, because just in case you didn't know it, uh, when you see a picture of John and April's family, you, you know, you're going to see all the kids, and, and, um, and then all of a sudden there's Sam. The rest of the family is vanilla, and Sam has a little color to it, like a lot. So he, he's adopted. You can tell he's adopted. Even if you're colorblind, you can tell he's adopted, okay? But, but what John told me is, is that in the state of Georgia, when they went in with the adoption papers for Sam in the state of Georgia, before the judge, they said, in this state, you are legally bound to Sam for the rest of your life. He is your son. There is nothing you can do to disown him. You can't come back into a court of law and say, hey, we no longer want this kid to be our You could do that with your natural-born kids. You could go like, hey, you know what, judge? Change their name, their last name to idiot because they no longer belong to our family. But you can't do that with an adopt, adopted once and forever, always in the state of Georgia. When you're adopted into the family, there's nothing they can do to get rid of you. That's what it's like to be adopted into the family of God. God will never disown you. He will never, he never lets you go. But believe me, he's not going to turn a blind eye. He's not going to wink at your stuff when you dishonor the name, the family name. He's going to come alongside you, and he is going to deliver to us what we need at that moment, which could be discipline and consequences to our bad behavior. Matter of fact, the reason we know that is because of Hebrews 12, 5 through 8. It says, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as a child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you, he does as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not really one of his children at all. So sometimes when you run into the discipline of God, don't go like, God, rescue me from yourself. You need to say, God, you know what? I know this is going to help me. Because you know what the end result of God's discipline in our life? It's a harvest of right living or righteousness. God, you know why it's a harvest of righteousness and right living? It's because what we're supposed to be is imitators of his son, Jesus. And Jesus is what? The righteous one. And so the father wants us to look like the son. So he takes us to the woodshed and says, we're going to learn some lessons here. And we learn those lessons. And we continue to grow and we continue to, to extend our life with Christ. And it is such an amazing thing. Let's move on. Uh, later on in 1 through 3, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him 
as he is. John says that what we will be has not yet appeared, meaning that there will be characteristics of Jesus that have not yet, we have not yet attained in our life. We're starting to look somewhat like him, but we will not fully accomplish that until God fulfills that in our lives when we step into glory. We press on. We continue to try and and live the life that God's calling us to. We will never be like Jesus in this sense either. And that is, He is God. He is divine. We are not God, and we will never be divine. But we are moving towards what is similarity, has similarities in us and in Him, and that's the characteristic that Jesus wants to have evident in our life. Now listen, there's more to salvation than just getting your get-out-of-hell-free card. Jesus, God didn't just save you to keep you from going to hell. That's the side benefit. The reason that He saved you is because He wants to conform you into the image of His Son. Make us like Jesus. Think of it this way, because when we are made and we start to conform to the image of His Son, we get we get to be like Jesus, is that we will be perfectly righteous. Rethink, think of it in this way, as a redesigned, as the spitting image of Jesus in terms of righteousness. But until we get to heaven, we are utter strangers to our future self. Until we get to heaven, we are utter strangers to our future self. Because we will not be what we will be. We are not what we are going to be. That's why in in the Lord's Prayer, it's really important to see that when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, He was talking about a both there and now aspect. Your kingdom come, the kingdom of heaven. Your kingdom come, your your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God wants His kingdom to rule in your life here on earth. It's not going to do it perfectly like it does in heaven, but He wants it to be here as it is there. And we want it to be here as it is there because when we get there, we have been here practicing all these years to be what we want to be up there. Did you get that? All right. So... um, What John is doing here is that he's reminding us that our future destiny helps us to know our present duty. Our future destiny helps us to know our present duty. And the reason we can and should do this is because we have hope. We we lit the candle of hope this morning. Now, hope's a very important word. In our understanding of hope is that it's kind of like wishful optimism with no guarantee that the thing we hope for will ever materialize. It's kind of like on Christmas. The kids make their list of the things that they're hoping for that they're going to have under the Christmas tree, and all of them probably cost $1,000 or more. And so they've got this hopeful optimism when they come on, on Christmas morning and they start opening the gifts that in one of those little boxes is going to be the keys to a brand new Corvette. Not going to happen. It was, you know, hopeful for a while, but the reality came is that all you got was a matchbox car looking like a Corvette. And that's about as close as you're going to get from mom and dad. And so that's kind of what we have. This earthly hope is often, you know, kind of brings a bit of sustaining stuff, but it's never satisfying. It really doesn't satisfy. Look at those, the last of verse 3 there. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In the New Testament, hope means settled certainty and confident expectation based on the promises of God. Not on something man made up, but on God. Here in John's passage, the ob- object of our hope is Jesus. This hope is future oriented and is based on the second coming of Jesus, and that will be confirmed, and we will be conformed to His image. What we should be 
when he comes to get us is we should be holy in conduct and character. But we will never be holy in our conduct until our character is right. Holiness begins internally and then works itself out in terms of actions. Notice that our incentive for living a holy life is not rules but relationship with Jesus. My incentive for right living is based on a higher love, a greater devotion to Jesus. When you love Jesus, you desire to be like Jesus. He is pure and holy. His children should desire the same thing. The practical implication of living the life of hope is self-purification. But here, listen to this. There's a sense in which we, we can partly, we partly can, and a sense in which we absolutely cannot purify ourselves. So, we cannot do it, yet it cannot be done without us. Do you get that? You cannot purify yourself, but you can't be purified if you're not there. You've got to show up for it. And the only one that is going to do that is God. And the only way it is done is by our uniting our own will to the will of God. That is when we're purified into righteousness. When we unite our wills to God's will and say, your will be done. Not mine, your will be done. Our desire for holiness should not grow cold because our happiness has not yet appeared. For the hope is sufficient. Our righteousness is not the ground of our hope, nor is it our warrant to hope in Christ. The only ground of our hope is in Christ himself. It's only about Jesus. If you've got your hope in something or someone else other than Jesus, it's misplaced and it will be disappointing. um, Paul helped us to understand that in Philippians. He said, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, it's Jesus doing the work to bring it to completion on that day. Do you see where it's completed at? It's not going to be completed today here in church. Unless Jesus comes right now. You should be looking for it. It's going to come. Okay? But it's completed when he comes, and it is completed by him. Let's move on to verses 4 through 6. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So what's sin? What is sin? Well, it's lawlessness. What's lawlessness? Well, all right, if you're taking notes, you might want to go back and listen to this again because I'm going to go real quick. Lawlessness is living as though your own ideas are superior to God's. Lawlessness says, God may demand it, but I don't prefer it. Lawlessness says, God may promise it, but I don't want it. Lawlessness replaces God's law with my contrary ideas. I become a law to myself. Lawlessness is rebellion against the right of God to make laws and govern his creatures. Lawlessness is willful rejection and active disobedience to the will of God. Lawlessness is a self-chosen disobedience that subverts man's true relation to the will of God. That's what sin is. Let me boil it down maybe even more simply. Sin is simply this. When you know to do the right thing and you don't do it, that is sin. It doesn't even have to be breaking one of the Ten Commandments. It's driving down the road and you see somebody alongside the road trying to change a flat tire and the Holy Spirit says, stop and help them change the tire and you go, don't have time, I'm going to be late. At that moment, right then, when you disregarded the voice of the Spirit in your life, you just sinned against God and that person, the Samaritan. 
Sin is not loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Sin is not loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Sin is not loving yourself the way God intended for you to love yourself. And so John says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. All right, so when you look at this, you're going like, okay, um, how do I get my head around this? Because it kind of sounds like we're all in deep kimchi, right? I mean, we're in deep trouble right now because we are, okay, I'm a sinner. I, okay, I'll admit it. I'm a sinner, saved by grace, and I've sinned. Does that mean that this is what it is? I'm practicing lawlessness? Well, let's carry on. It says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Okay, so what is John really trying to tell us here? Uh, uh, This first little part, I call it Captain Obvious. You know who Captain Obvious is, right? Hey, your house is on fire. Well, thank you, Captain Obvious. Um, John is kind of like Captain Obvious in, in that he is saying, you know that when, he, that when that he appeared in order to take away the sin. We know that. We know that Jesus went to the cross and died to take away our sins. We know that. We've seen that verse a hundred times at sporting events all around the world, John 3.16. We know, what, and so Captain Obvious here is telling us this, but what John is doing is he doesn't want anybody to, to not get the point. He's not making an assumption here. He's not assuming that everybody gets it. And he wants everybody to get it. So what he is just simply reminding us of what Jesus did for us. But he goes on to say that if we are truly a child of God, if we are genuinely a Christ follower, we will not keep on sinning. The key here is that John is referring to someone who is expressing their desire to live life the way they want, and that would be in an ongoing lifestyle of sin. When it talks about keep on sinning, it's talking about a specific area in your life where you willingly desire to step in and live in this sin regardless of what God says about it. Because when you do that, when you say, I'm going to live this way in this sin, I don't care what God has to say about it. John's saying, then you really don't know what it means to be in Christ. Maybe some of you are just fooling yourself this morning. You might be just thinking that I'm okay, even though I've got this problem over here. It's an issue, and I'm trying to deal with my issue, my problem. But the problem is is that that pig trough gets filled up on a regular basis and you're going back and you're eating out of the pig trough every single day. And you think it's okay. And what you don't know is that over here on this side is this banquet table that has got the finest of wine, the greatest of meats, the best bread anybody would ever partake from. And God's saying, come eat and dine with me. I've got more. I've got plenty. Come and have your fill. Come and have it all. That's what Jesus wants you to get. But you're living over here in the pig trough and you're eating from this crap and you think it's really good. And the reason you like that is because you don't know that. And Jesus is calling you. He's calling you to get out of the trough and come to the table. And on the way from the trough to the table. He is going to wash you. He is going to cleanse you. He is going to purify you. He is going to make you clean. He's going to make you suitable. He's going to make you pure. And He will make you holy. On the trip from the pig trough to the table, He will accomplish all of that because He is God and you are not. That's what John says right here. He says, you know, He's not, just, he's not referring to an occasional specific sin, but rather a lifestyle of it. And he said right there, not to know him or to know Christ here in this, describes someone who is not genuinely saved. 
you're fooling yourself and you've listened to the lies of the enemy because he is telling you that you are good enough. Do you want to be good enough? Wouldn't you rather be great? If you're a child of God, you're great. You are not good enough. You are great. So let's move on to 7 through 10. Little children, let no one deceive you. Uh Uh-huh, there it is. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. I'm going to stop right there. Now, what John's getting at here is is that at, at the time he's writing this letter to the churches, there are people who have already infiltrated the church and they're teaching something other than what the gospel taught. And one of the things they're teaching is they're saying that you can be a child of God and you can still live over here at the pig trough because it really doesn't matter. God really doesn't care that much. As long as you're a child of God, you can come over here and dine with the swine. Boom. And, and John's going like, no, that's not true. That is absolutely false because whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, as Jesus is righteous. What do you want to practice? Sin? Or do you want to practice righteousness? It's hard work. I'm going to tell you, it's hard work practicing righteousness. It's really difficult to live a righteous life. And so every once in a while, honestly, I end up at pig trough. And it starts to become really disgusting and God kind of pulls me up by the nap of the neck and goes, now boy, you know better than that. Why'd you leave the dining room table to come out here to the pig trough? I'm going to clean you up on the way back to the dining room table. By the way, we might, might stop at the woodshed on the way. Just might. But we'll end up back at the table. You know why God does that? Because you're, you're, you're his child. He's adopted you. Legally, he has legal guardianship over your life, over your soul. And so he is going to do whatever it takes to protect you, to grow you, to help you become the person that you need to be that looks more like Christ. Let's move on. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, uh, this is great, you want to know why Jesus came? Was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him and cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, let's just for a moment think about what John is saying here, particularly at at verse 8. First, let me just kind of hit this up. If you are that person, there's no neutral ground. I'm going to tell you that right now. You are either a child of God or you are a child of the devil. There's no middle ground on this. You can't be neutral. You can't be like Sweden. Sweden's always neutral on everything. You can't be that way. You are either in God's family, in his household, he has given you a new name, and he calls you beloved, or you are a son or daughter of a devil. Now, how would that be for a little cuss word when you go to work? You son of a devil. That's worse than anything else anybody else could ever say to you. But we wouldn't take it as a slam. It wouldn't be, we wouldn't go like, what? You just called me a son of a devil. No, I'm a son of, I'm a son of God. No, you're not. You're acting, you're sinning, you're doing just like your father does. He's a father of lies, so when you lie, you're speaking your father's language. That's what Jesus said. And so, we've got this thing going on where the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, it's not, it's, it's the beginning of when he was cast out of heaven, Lucifer. And he took a, uh, one-third of all the angels, became demons, and followed Lucifer. And they live among us, and they are demons, devils. Satan's the big, big cheese, Lucifer, and all the rest of them are his little minions, and they're out to just cause a lot of havoc in your life to make you miserable. But we have legal rights as children of God. So what we want to look at now is in verse 8, and it's the word destroy. Destroy means to loose, unbind, to unravel, to dissolve. Thus, Satan's works are conceived as chains that bind us, which Jesus now breaks. His works have a 
coherence and interconnectedness being somehow intertwined as if a tapestry of sorts. Jesus came to undo and dissolve the enemy's efforts. The coming of Jesus was... Um, I got to find out where I was. Yes. Concerned with the unpacking of the net of evil, which the devil has always used and, and uh, attempted to trap us with. What are Satan's works? Here they are. More, I'm, I'm boiling them down kind of broad term. Morally, he entices us to sin. Physically, he infects disease and seeks to destroy those who bear the image of God. Intellectually, he seduces us into error. And spiritually, he blinds the minds of unbelievers lest they see and believe the gospel. That's what the enemy wants to do. He has come to rob, kill, and destroy. So how did Jesus destroy the works of the devil? Without going into too much detail because that could be a whole sermon all on its own. We're just going to answer this by pointing out several things. First, we should look to the life and ministry of Jesus because when we see this, we see his perfect and exhaustive obedience to the law of God fulfilling on our behalf that what we could never live up to. We see and adhere to his teaching of truth and thus his exposing of error. He destroyed the works of the devil when he successfully and sin sinlessly resisted the devil's temptations in the desert. He also delivered people and drove out demons and set people free from their bondage to him. That's the first thing Jesus did to destroy the works of the devil. Second, he also destroyed the works of the devil by the means of his death. The principal goal of Satan is to thwart the goal of God. God's principal goal is to the glory is to glorify himself. Insofar as the cross of Christ glorified God, it defeated Satan. When Jesus died as God's judgment against, against that, Jesus came to the verdict and vindicated us through the cross. Satan seeks to undermine God's glory. Jesus aims to uphold it. Satan aims to keep men and women in their sin and under its penalty, and held in the bondage of its power, suffering mental and emotional defeat from its guilt and and accusations. Insofar as Christ's death secured redemption from sin and its guilt, Satan has suffered defeat. As long as Satan can keep people in their sin, he will torment them with the fear of death, for death is the penalty of sin. Yet we read in Hebrews chapter 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You should write that verse down, underline it in your Bible, pin it to the doorway of your home. You should read that every day before you step out of your holy sanctuary called your home. Because that's what Jesus did for you. That's what he did for me. The third, and the third thing is Jesus defeated and destroyed the works of Satan through his bodily resurrection from the dead and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. By raising Jesus from the dead and exalting him to the right hand of majesty on high, God the Father ratified, confirmed, and openly proclaimed the sufficiency of the cross. In light of all this, you may be asking a question. If Jesus so thoroughly defeated the devil and his demons through his life, death, and resurrection, why should we have to worry about them today? Why is there still a war ongoing for our souls? Well, it's true that Jesus is sealed Satan's ultimate defeat and demise. The legal ground on the basis which, which the enemy seeks to destroy us has been undermined by Jesus. And our relationship with God has overturned it. We wage go- war against a defeated enemy. But he is still our enemy. and He is still active. Out on bond, as it were before his ultimate and eternal imprisonment. 
And his primary aim is to convict, convince us that he still has authority and a power over our lives. And to the degree that we open the door to his presence or grant him access to our lives, he can still wreak havoc. And he doesn't have to. We just give the authority to him. The authority has been given to you. Take it. You know, we don't have to suffer from Satan's deliberating presence or yield to his temptations or experience the shame and paralyzing guilt that he tries to inflict on us. The constant testimony of Scripture is the victory of Christ over the demonic and the authority and the power that is ours if we believe in it and we take our stand in the name and the authority of Christ. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. All right, I'm just going to, I want to just bounce this up real quick. Uh, I've just got a couple of verses I want to share with you, just kind of in closing. I'm just going to kind of skip over some stuff here, okay? But what we are is what Paul calls us a new creation because of what Jesus has done for us, Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, in Jeremiah 24, Jeremiah says that we have a new heart. God calls us to have a new heart. He says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And in Ezekiel 36, we've been given a new spirit. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put them in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So the question is, is what's the evidence that we know we are children of God? Those three verses. We are a new creature in Christ. We have been given a a new heart to know God. We have had our heart of stone taken out and been given a heart of flesh because we have a new spirit. And by this is the evidence who are the children of God. And who are the children of God, the devil? Those who do not practice righteousness. It is not of God, nor is it the one who does not love his brother. So this morning, my friends, simply this is it. You are a child of God if you have stepped into relationship through Jesus Christ. And there is no one, no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, that can take away your birthright as a child of God. You are adopted. It is legal. It is binding. You are a child of God. Live as children of God. Imitate Christ Jesus as you live your lives. That's what the goal is for us to walk in newness with Christ, is to imitate Jesus. Secondly, there may be some in here today who have been deceiving themselves and thinking that they are a child in of God, when in fact they are dining at the pig trough that the enemy, that the devil has placed for them, their father, the devil, has given them the pig trough and they think they're eating the best that there is and there is so much more that God has. And you have got to get up and make the step to the table and let Jesus take your life and absolutely clean you from top to bottom because at the beginning of this This letter John wrote, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And it's those steps as you walk to the dining table with Jesus that you're purified, that you're righteous, that you're holy, that you become a child of God. And God our Father is standing there and he has the the robe that he's putting on your shoulders. He's placing the ring of the sun on his hand and he's putting the best sandals on your feet and he's turned around and he has said, prepare for the biggest party we've ever had because this one who was lost is now found. The one who had run away has come back home and he is free and he is my child and he is my son and we are going to celebrate God's goodness in our life. Amen. So this morning, my question to you is, are you a child of God or are you a child of the devil? God's been talking to you this morning. I know the Spirit of God's been speaking to you because He's spoken to me. I've even confessed some sin I wasn't planning on confessing this morning. Oops. 
But it's good. Because it says that when we confess our sin, He's going to bring healing to our lives. So if you want to be healed emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, confess your sin and find healing for your life. And that's what this front is for. We've got the oil right here. And the Bible tells us that the elders will anoint you. Remember, if you come up here to be healed for anything, I don't care what it is, you come up here to be healed, the elders are going to grab this really great smelling oil and the first question they're going to ask you, is there anything in your life that you need to confess that's hindering God from healing your life? Let's confess that sin because that's what it says. Confess your sin so that you can be healed. Think, I mean, you might have already confessed it before you came to church. You go, you know what? I've already confessed my sin to God. I'm good. Let's, I'm ready to get healed. Whatever it is. Maybe you just need to come up here and ask God to do something new in your heart, to give you a new step, a new beat. Maybe you need God just to give you hope because right now at this time of the year, you're kind of feeling hopeless. I don't know what it is that you're feeling right now, but I do know the one that will help you in your time of need, and his name is Jesus. So as the worship team comes, and we're going to sing some songs together, and the Spirit of God's working in your heart, don't let any of the things surrounding you Hinder you from coming up and connecting with your Heavenly Father because His words are to you. I love you deeply. Nothing will ever separate me from you. My love will never be separated from you. Come and be a part of the family. Our Father, thank you. Thank you that your love for us is immeasurable. Thank you that your, your love for us is unimaginable. We can't imagine how great it is. We thank you today that your love is so great that it cleanses us from all of our sin and purifies us and makes us righteous and helps us to walk in new life. And so I pray today, God, that your spirit would be at work in the hearts and the lives of the men and women who call you by name, who maybe need to be dealt with at the woodshed or maybe just need a hug from you today saying, you're my daughter, you're my son, and I will love you forever. I will never abandon you. Come and do your work.